Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Hey, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Fanalytics podcast. My name is Mike Lewis and I am joined as always by Doug Battle. How are you doing today, Doug? I am good. Just living another week um, without sports, although I will say... We had some uh, seemingly hopeful news this last week, maybe some optimism arising in the sports world. And then we've also got a uh, interesting story involving Zion Williamson and college athletes being compensated for their play. Well, let's let, let's start there. Let's start with the, the Zion, I don't know, the lawsuit. Or, I mean, what, what's the basic outlines of the story? Yeah, so allegedly Zion Williamson and his family – Uh, received money and gifts from Nike, Adidas, and Duke during his recruitment. Um, For those wondering why Nike and Adidas would be giving money to Zion, it's because they want him to sign with a school that wears their shoes and their um, uniforms. And well, let, let me add to that because that is something that maybe a lot of folks that don't, that are not hardcore college basketball fans may not realize. And by hardcore, I mean that, that you start to follow college basketball prospects, you know, in, in late junior high, sometimes that a lot of, you know, this is from the outsider's point of view, that a lot of the potential scandals and potential corruption in terms of colleges and student athletes moved away from being, you know, let's say directly to the boosters to the influence of shoe companies with AAU teams and with with collegiate programs. You know, a lot of discussion of even the the shoe companies steering players to Adidas schools or to Nike schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it, it's just an interesting situation to me because Williamson's now in the NBA, right? And Duke has moved on. They have different players. Nike and Adidas, how exactly would the NCAA punish them if they were to have compensated Zion Williamson in some way you know the ramifications of a potential technically cheating scandal in the NCAA here um, is interesting to me well and what I like about the story and why I maybe what I don't like about the story but why I found it find it interesting is that throughout the throughout the last month we've spent some time talking about 
the G League moving into signing top high school prospects. We've talked a little bit about the NCAA beginning to move more rapidly to allow players to profit from their images and likenesses. You know, I I can almost imagine making the kind of comment that, you know, if I was going to sell a sport short, it might be NCAA basketball. I mean, you know, anyone that's a fan of NCAA basketball or NCAA football, you know, these, these cheating scandals have always been in the background. What's interesting about this Zion one is it seems like this is totally consistent with the likely shift that the NCAA wants to make in terms of allowing players to do these sort of soft endorsement deals Mm -hmm. on their own. When I think of it in the context of everything that's been going on in the world, I mean, starting with the California legislation to force the NCAA into allowing players to sell their likenesses and images all the way through the, the G League, College basketball strikes me as that they're they're really ending up in a precarious position in all this. The shoe companies wanting to start to manage the careers of the top one, two, three, or four prospects every year strikes me as a factor that could really accelerate the push to the G League mm-hmm. away from college basketball because it's not just a matter of you know, paying these guys, you know, signing a shoe deal by a high school senior, I suspect that you're very quickly going to get into issues of coordination. If, you know, Zion is, you know, signed by the names of some of the G League teams, it escapes me. But you can imagine that that might be much more appealing to Adidas and Nike, uh, on one level, more appealing to Adidas and Nike, because they can start to craft the marketing program that fits into his career. Now, on the other side of it, you know, you could counter argue and say, well, no, they, they still want them to go to places like the Duke or the Kentucky because it's going to be more high profile. So it's it's going to be kind of an interesting dynamic in terms of being able to coordinate and control versus these kind of strengths of these legacy brands and how quickly uh, there's a shift away from the college powers to people caring about the G League. Yeah, I absolutely think that this is the kind of thing that can drive players like Zion from NCAA to the G League. Um, One thing that's interesting to look at is in the NBA, how much some of the big stars are compensated on their salary as opposed to on their shoe deals. Because Mm -hmm. if you look at the big stars in the league, they actually make more in their shoe endorsements um, than they do on their actual contracts with the NBA. And so if you take a player like Zion to the G League, Right, and Zion signed a seventy-five million dollars shoe deal before playing in the NBA. So after his years at Duke, um, it's feasible to imagine those kinds of shoe deals come into those generational players like Zion in the G League. And and I think brands like Nike and Adidas are willing to take risks, and I think they have enough information to know that a player may be special enough to invest in at that point early in their career. Um, and so. You go from a $250,000 and $750,000 contract <laughs> in the G League to $75 million with Jordan brand or with Nike or Adidas, and all of a sudden, I don't know if anyone's anyone elite is wanting to play in college. You know, it, it, and while we're not going to talk about it today because I'm a little bit behind on the Jordan documentary, you know, one of, one of the thoughts that has gone through my mind as we've watched that is... The level of stardom that college basketball players used to achieve versus mm-hmm. what they they achieve currently. 
Um, you know, when I, when I think back to, you know, as, as where this documentary is set of the, the collegiate stardom of a Larry Bird and a Magic Johnson through Isaiah to Michael Jordan, uh, Sam Perkins, uh, James Worthy, Patrick Ewing, you know, that, that level of stardom that was formulated before the NBA in the college arena versus, you know, if, if I was to ask you, you know, who are the main stars of college basketball over the last decade based on their performances in college, it's it's a desert out there. Yeah. And, and so I, I think, you know, there's a lot of forces that are sort of transpiring you know, coming together to re- create a, a substantial problem for NCAA basketball. Now, on the other side of it, and maybe I'm wrong, and this is, this is again, pure speculation, I, I feel like NCAA football might be quite a bit safer in the near term. That, you know, while we might start to see a real kind of battle or sort of struggle between um, the G League and the NCAA basketball, where you know it's legacy brands versus stardom and better marketing, uh, college football I suspect is going to be relatively safe in all this. Um, and, and if that's just a function that it's more difficult to identify kind of the very key prospects, if the infrastructure and the costs of minor league football just don't, you know, can't possibly pay out profitably, um, or if it's just that uh, you know the innate loyalty of college fans is more related to football than to basketball. I, I think college sports is going to be a fascinating thing to watch. And I, I, I mean, what do you think? You're, you're a Georgia guy. Yeah. I'm an Illinois guy, so I focus a little bit more on let's say basketball and see the weaknesses. As a Georgia football fan, what do you think? You know, I don't know with football because it's widely accepted amongst football fans that teams are already giving out impermissible benefits for players, right? And and I guess blind eyes are being turned to that. I've never really understood how it happens legally or within the constraints of the NCAA's rules um, without teams like in Alabama, teams that are winning championships, getting absolutely blown up by it. So at some point, I feel like that could blow up in the faces of some major programs and cause a lot of problems for college football. Uh, But at the same time, if you look at like the sneaker side of basketball, it's really not as much of an issue in football. I seriously doubt Nike and Adidas are pushing certain players to Nike schools and Adidas schools. Um, But just because the worth you know, with with basketball, there's five players on the court, and basketball, there's such a sneaker culture. There's not as much of a cleat culture in football, <laughs> uh, where consumers are are obsessing over the shoes that are being worn or whatnot. And so, I don't know. I hope college football never changes because it's great right now. I think everyone can agree that it's been a great system for fans, but that, you know, players being able to leave after three years has certainly changed things. And if it were reduced to one year, um, you know, you'd have a player like Trevor Lawrence that would have been the number one pick two years ago. And even a Tua Tungavailoa may have been drafted after one game, essentially. And so college football certainly could change in the same way that college basketball has. And it partially depends on rules and partially depends on NCAA enforcement. Well, and, you know, maybe just even the, the structure of the sport where... Yeah, for for whatever reason, it seems like eighteen year old, nineteen year olds are at least the elite ones are able to compete in the NBA. Where I mean, you mentioned Trevor Lawrence. I I gotta think that's more of the sort of rare exception in all this. So you know, structurally, maybe football takes a little bit more development. I look at it as also, 
you know, that maybe the NFL needs college football more than the NBA needs college basketball. Mm. And it'll be interesting to see how those things play out over time. Because if the NBA doesn't need college basketball, if they're not providing the benefits by creating the stars, then it's hard to imagine those games becoming relevant. Or, you know, I may I should say it'd be, it'll be interesting to see how the fact that so many alumni want to root for their, their teams, if the quality diminishes and the stars leave. Whereas in, in football, it's, it's more difficult for me to imagine, you know, the, the scale of the numbers involved, right? I mean, the NFL draft is seven rounds. The NBA draft is essentially one round and sort of a, a fake second round. Um, and especially living here in the South, it's uh, kind of hard to imagine anything kind of touching the SEC. Yeah. Uh, as far as players being prepared for the pros in football and needing more development, I do think that varies by position. Um, I think positions like running oh, yeah. backs. like Running back, you're absolutely right. Todd Gurley point. and Nick Chubb, both those guys as high schoolers and as freshmen at Georgia were – yeah. clearly like top 10 backs in the NFL and it was kind of unfair to have them in college for three years but it was awesome to watch you know um, what that that's a great sports analytics point because the running back position is the yeah, let, let me put it this way in terms of negotiating NCAA or NFL draft rules yeah or negotiating uh you know the collective bargaining agreement in terms of free agency contracts or when players are eligible the running backs have never seemed to have had a seat at the table because all of those agreements seem much more structured for, let's say, quarterbacks that need development and get to play for a long time. Because you're, you're, you're dead on that the, some of these elite running backs lose millions of dollars by being delayed to go to the NFL. Exactly, they, yeah. they, they take the number of hits that actually decreases the NFL career that they're going to have. It's... Um, Truly, you know, it's, it's almost we need like we need CBAs that vary across positions. No, if you look at the running back position, like this year, the first running back taken was Edwards Alaire out of LSU, and it was viewed as a pro how few carries he had in his college career. Um, Absolutely, because he had been behind some guys, whereas DeAndre Swift had more carries. And you talk about someone like Todd Gurley. If you look at his contract status after his. After his rookie contract, he inked this insane deal, and then he gets arthritis in his knee, and his value just plummets. Um, and, and he's not making what he would have been making if he had been in the NFL during his college years. And then a really extreme case would be someone like Marcus Lattimore, who was a insanely talented college running back at South Carolina, but tore his ACL twice in his, I believe, sophomore and junior years in college and never had a pro career at all. Did not get to, you know, was not compensated at all for his elite performance and, you know, the money that he brought to his university and into television networks when he was in college. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's almost little, little doubt about this issue. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. there is no doubt. So I do think that running back position is where you could start making more of an argument for college football players to be treated more like college basketball players. Because even more so than basketball players, those running backs are losing value in, in every year that they're in college. Well, let, let me say this to sort of put a piece of punctuation on this. 
it's kind of a great example when you sort of go down the path of looking at running backs and you, know, you could dig into the data and figure out where how the wear and tear essentially turns running backs into used cars that quickly lose their lose their value. Right. It'd be a, a really interesting analytics project to, you know, I mentioned the CBA, to actually do customize, you know, to have the CBA structures vary across positions in terms of, you know, I mean, you can almost imagine that, you imagine if you start from the perspective that every player has the right to maximize their income mm-hmm. that with some let's say constraints and and I look I don't even know how you ever how you ever institute a contract to deny people the right to enter the NFL whenever they want I mean that that has always struck me as a little bit crazy right but given some of those constraints that some people get to go earlier because of the length of the career the decrease in their earning potential as a function of the number of carries and, and you know you could imagine doing the same kind of thing within the NBA, right? Like the, the arguments that, you know, big men take a little bit longer to develop. So maybe they can be, you know, have different structures. And, you know, the, if you draft a seven foot guy late in the first round, there's a pretty good chance that the guy that's the, the team that's going to benefit from his skills developing are the guy that signed him to a second contract. Right. right? So there's um, that would be a absolutely fascinating topic to really dig into the data i just don't know that anyone would have the stomach for it in terms of being willing to negotiate it you could also imagine some scenario where it's like well people are drafting wide receivers by saying they're running backs um so a a tough a tough thing but really kind of an interesting at least from an academic perspective yeah absolutely so let's talk a little bit about the potential return of sports because that's something that has come up this last week. And the first big story there is with Walt Disney World. Didn't see that one coming. Uh, but <laughs> Wait, wait. I heard on the news this morning that Walt Disney World Shanghai is opening. Is, is that where you're going with this? No, but um, it would be interesting to see the NBA resume play there. But no, the and Orlando actually provides a great infrastructure uh, for an NBA return. And uh, Disney chairman and former CEO, I believe, Bob Iger, made a video presentation to the NBA's Board of Governors last week, essentially saying Disney's got the hotels, they've got the restaurants and accommodations to house NBA players and the staffers as well as their families. And the ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex in Orlando actually has the basketball facilities necessary as well as the media setup necessary for the NBA in their season. And so, you know, there's questions as to if this happens, when could it start? What about next season? What would the implications be there? But this is seriously a a proposal that's being floated around among NBA, uh, the NBA Board of Governors. So when I hear this stuff and I think about sports coming back, I, my mind tends to go in two directions. Okay. One in terms of, let's say, just implementation issues. So, I mean, sports have started to come back. And, you know, the the UFC held an event over the weekend. And I, I didn't see the whole thing, but I saw some of the, I watched some of the highlights. And one of the things that struck me is how, uh, you know, I want to choose my words carefully here, how clinical uh, it felt that mm-hmm. when you take the fans away, that it, it feels like you're watching a couple of guys spar at the gym 
right. in terms of you're almost expecting to hear the coaches yell from the side kind of correction. So it almost has this feel like a real high level practice. And, and so one of the one of my immediate thoughts is as you go back in this path, that there's probably some real important issues in terms of how you produce this stuff where when you take out the, the fan excitement, right, that sort of the, the crowd vibe and the noise, that you need to replace it with something. Oh, and yeah. I, I'm just speculating that maybe what you replace it with is more of the analytics, more of, more of the coaching, huh. that it ends up being almost more educational programming. Yeah, I think that's a great point because i didn't even think about that but if if you watch i saw when uh march madness proposed having the ncaa tournament without fans and someone made a video of villanova buzzer beater over north carolina and they took out all of the fans from the crowd and they added in sound for like the squeaking of shoes and the dribbling of the basketball and the buzzer sounding like a high school gym buzzer and it was just awkward to watch you know and i was thinking there's no way they're really going to do this and if they do how do they you know how do they compensate for that lack of sound and that lack of feel in the energy in the in the building and uh you know you see at nba games or if you've if you've been to one you'll hear them play because regular season NBA games are, you know, they lack an atmosphere a lot at a lot of venues and they'll play those kind of organ songs while a team's on offense just to keep something going. Um, But yeah. How do you, how do you handle that in an empty gym? Yeah. And I think, you know, you, in a way what leagues should be thinking about is how to embrace it. Right. So how do you take these kind of constraints and sort of go with the flow? And so if you've got a, if you got a structure that feels more like a like it's a practice, then you emphasize, let's say, the technical aspects of the game. Um, you know, the other side of it, sort of the longer term side, and I think this is what you're getting at. You know, I, I, I've not seen the example where they take the crowd noise out of a sporting event, but I have seen the um, where they take the laugh track out of sitcoms, <laughs> and I, I think the concepts are. I think the underlying issues are related, right? So if you yeah. take the energy out of something, the crowd energy, you know, how does that change the fan experience? And you watch a sitcom without the laugh track, and I've seen this done with like the Big Bang Theory, you kind of, you know, it, it gives you a pause. It's like, I don't know what this thing's about. How are these even jokes, frankly? Right. And so if you take away that that energy, what does that do to fandom in the long term i mean the other thing that's interesting about this is that where a lot of sports marketing has been over the last couple of years is in the topic of or the issue of fan experience management customer experience management yes everything is an experience and now you're taking that all away you're taking away the communal consumption you're taking away the 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 atmosphere and the 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 atmospherics i guess whatever you want to call it and it, it becomes this very different kind of product. Um, well, and, and look, you know, we, we've talked some about our personal fandom. How much of uh, game day at the University of Georgia is about the ninety-five thousand plus fans in that stadium? Oh, it's it's crucial. I mean, there's multiple games I think back to specifically the Notre Dame game last year. And even on TV, you'll see the whole crowd light up the stadium and the way the players will interact with the crowd, you know, raising their hands, getting people pumped up. And you take that out of college football. What does college football look like next year with 
empty stadiums. I mean, are they do they play on a high school field to make it look not as empty, or do they play in a big empty hundred thousand person stadium? Well, you know, coming back to this UFC event, why did they play that in an empty arena? Yeah. You know, why, why didn't they just go to a local gym and get that done? Um, you know, maybe there are some issues of things like lighting and some production value. But it does have your your point is kind of interesting. Why not play in a different sort of arena if we're going to do this without without fans? Because it does. It's always look, and I think this happens a lot of times with whenever there's kind of a sport that's not particularly popular, or even some of the ball games. Right, as a fan, I can't help but when if I'm watching this stuff on TV, trying to wait for the camera operator to make it a, a mistake so I can see that there's no one in the stands. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this, this lack of energy. But, you know, I, I will say this, that, you know, we, we take this kind of clinical view of it. As long as this is just kind of a short term, I think I think the fans will be tremendously understanding that it's a, you know, a different kind of crazy environment. Yeah. I, I, my point is just I think these guys have got to figure out a way to take this crazy environment and move it in interesting directions. And, I, and so... Go ahead. Yeah, I agree. And actually tying this to the Last Dance documentary, um, last night's episodes and last week's episodes had similar footage of practice with with Michael Jordan being uber competitive and hearing some of the trash talk in a practice setting and seeing some of the dynamics between those players. Last week it was Jordan versus Magic, and this week it was Jordan against some of his teammates. And hearing the coaching and hearing the barking, you know, amongst the players and the talk, I feel like the empty gym basketball ultimately could be an opportunity to show this uber competitive side of the players. Granted, there would likely have to be some censorship of, of language and things of that nature uh, for the NBA's, you know, that, brand that's standpoint. Kind, that's kind of a great point, because, and it's something I hadn't thought of. So as we move to this different kind of environment where more noises are heard, right, where more of the almost the truth comes out, right, this almost has more of a reality TV feel that some of these guys might need to be much more conscious about their personal brands. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, this is kind of, you know, going back to the Michael Jordan documentary. When you take away the home fans, does the guy, the scrappy player, the Dennis Rodman or some of the Detroit Pistons kind of, you know, that physical play, does that change the feel? And it starts to go from being kind of tough, hard nosed basketball to, wow, that guy's over the edge. This is mm-hmm. just out of line. And the same thing with, you know, Michael Jordan, this guy, this ultra competitive athlete is like, oh, maybe he's kind of a jerk to his teammates. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And I think having been close to the field and close to the court for a number of sporting events, I do think it would change uh, people's perception of some of the players, some of the good guys that you see and view as a good guy. Someone like Michael Jordan, the the guy that everyone wants to be like. I don't think some parents would want their kids to be like him, you know, if they heard everything that was coming out of his mouth while playing a game. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, the other thing I come back to is uh, as this environment has shifted and it's become kind of strange, I suspect there are some lessons that guys can learn from. And, and it's almost like... You, you would the the producers of this these events would want to learn from you know sort of take what they do well and look at some events like the Olympics you know and I, I think about some of those events where the the you know the folks that do the Olympics are masters at making you care about 
guys that are you know mm-hmm. rowing or you know long distance cycling you know this stuff that doesn't have a that doesn't have a crowd right mm-hmm. and so adding more of that kind of you know and to some extent increase maybe the narrative that goes along with this i mean so and again i'm just sort of putting there as speculation i i think as you go to this you increase the narrative you do a little bit more almost uh, you know, especially if you got all the basketball players in the world living in Orlando, or all the baseball players in, in MLB living in Phoenix, you do a little bit more behind the scenes. But then you also do a little bit more in terms of the, you know, the, the more insights and analytics related to the sport. Yeah, I think that'd be a way to leverage the situation and, and capitalize on what we have to work with right now. And speaking of what we have to work with right now, basketball is not the only sport currently contemplating a return. We also have football and baseball. So the MLB supposedly going to have a return to play proposal this week. Uh, the NFL is starting to open facilities for players. And of course the NBA has opened, uh, many teams have opened facilities for individual workouts and, uh, it just seems like there's there's a little bit of optimism overall that sports could be returning well, this you summer. Know, the, the, the tough one, though, is when do college football players report to camp? You know, the college football is, a, is an interesting case in all this because if college football players tend to report to camp, and I want to say late July or early August, Mm-hmm. Can a sport move when the students are not on campus? And I think there was some, I think there was a posting by the NCAA by Mark Emmert that basically, you know, said, well, you know, we're not going to run sports if the students are not mm-hmm. on campus. And so college sports might have the trickiest situation in all of this. Can you have the players report and start going to camp when the schools have not said that they're going to? Then they're they're not going to open. So that's that's to me is you know I I think these pro sports have all got to move back. You know they've got to get they've got to get back into play. They've got to sort of you know regain that mind space. The college side sort of almost going full circle from their earlier discussion. That's going to be the trickiest one to implement. Yeah, there's two sides to that because on the on the one hand, it actually is technically safer for players to be on campus with no other students on campus, right? They're, they're exposed to far less people. There's far less potential cases of coronavirus being spread. Um, but from an optics standpoint, there's going to be this, you know, we're making these student athletes risk their well-being yeah. in order to generate money, whereas the average student is not being asked to be on campus at the same time. And so there's two sides to that, and, you know, it'll get – how things always get it'll get a little political as the marketing guy in all this you know uh, your your word of optics is interesting because yeah it's a it's a disaster in terms of selling this stuff to the public right where Mm -hmm. you know there's already so much issues of these players are exploited etc now you're going to make them risk their health Uh, tough one tough one Mm -hmm. yeah and on to piggyback on that um there's also the optics of testing players and specifically professional players you look at the nba situation bringing in this bubble there would have to be a lot of testing and there's this perception that testing these guys is keeping maybe sick and poor people from being tested and it becomes a wealth versus poverty 
dynamic in the public eye and it certainly can be framed that way and i would assume that it would be and so i think that's something that's being taken into consideration seriously when weighing the return of sports absolutely well why don't we go why don't we cut it from here with the uh with the thought being that you know in in some ways and and i don't want to make light of the the current situation but this is a it's an interesting time to be a, a sports fan and it's a, an especially interesting time to be uh someone that's com you know doing commentary on on the world of sports uh, you know, rapidly evolving. Situ- well, actually, you know, I mean, it actually feels like a very slowly evolving situation. But if you think about what's in play, a rapidly evolving situation. And, you know, as, as the weeks go on, it will be an amazing thing to watch of how sports is, how sports is relaunched and how leagues get back into this. Um, you know, it, it's going to be an interesting thing how society starts to refunction again. Um, you know, we're down here in Georgia where we got a lot of press in terms of the economy being reopened. Uh, in general, folks have gone much slower than I think people thought they were going to in terms of protections. And so I think we have to think that that's how sports is going to proceed with a lot of a lot of interesting approaches to managing public health and managing public relations so with that let's uh let's cut it for let's cut it for today and we'll talk to you guys again next week thank you